Good to be with you uh, this morning and sing to the Lord, be reminded of many of the truths we're going to be looking at today in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me there to Galatians chapter 3? If you don't have one, there should be a blue one underneath the seat uh, in front of you. It looks like this. And in those Bibles will be on page 566, page 566. If you're new with us, our habit uh, most weeks is to work our way simply in the next section of a book of the Bible. And we start uh, in the beginning and work our way all the way through that book, for we believe all of Scripture is God's Word given for our good. Uh, When you build a new house, you shall make a guardrail for your roof. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, Whoever touches a dead body shall be unclean for seven days. Numbers chapter 19. If anyone sins unintentionally, he shall bring to the Lord a ram. Leviticus chapter 5. Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. Not me. Him. Exodus chapter 23. You shall not eat the flesh of a camel. Or a rock badger. The hare or the pig. Leviticus chapter 11. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Exodus 22. If a man sells a house in a walled city, he must buy it back within a year of its sale. Leviticus chapter 25. This one's been a problem for me. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not anything eat anything that has died naturally. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Take flour to the priest. He shall burn a portion of it on the altar on top of the special gifts presented to the Lord. It is an offering for sin. Leviticus chapter 5. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Malachi chapter 3. On the eighth day of his life, your son is to be circumcised. Leviticus chapter 12. This is a small sample of the hundreds of laws found in the Old Testament. They're all commandments from God, and yet none of them are your responsibility to keep. To be clear, they they are commands, they're not suggestions, but you won't be sinning if you don't follow them. Yes, they're in the Bible, but God is not expecting you to obey them. They are not binding on you personally or on us corporately. Those parts of the Bible simply no longer are for us. Do I have your attention? This morning we want to think about what God expects from people today if we would be made right with Him. Now to put that more precisely, what is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian? 
What is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian? Throughout the letter of Galatians, Paul has been insisting that despite what all the new teachers had come in and were telling the Christians in Galatia, that the way to be made right with God is not by believing in Jesus and obeying the law but rather it's only by believing in Jesus. In the strongest possible way, Paul has been asserting that circumcision and feast and priest and Old Testament law, that none of that is now required. But why? Why are the commands of the Old Testament no longer our commands if the entire Bible is still our Bible. Do we get to just pick and choose? I'll take that one, and I don't like that one. And if not, then why must we follow some commands and not others? Is it arbitrary, or is there actually a reason behind it? Well, passage for this morning, believe it or not, will answer all of these questions. Additionally, and maybe more importantly, it will help us understand the tremendous privileges that are already ours in Christ. So I want to encourage you to buckle your proverbial seatbelt because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Our text falls into two paragraphs. As you glance down at your Bible, you'll see Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29 form the first paragraph. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, cover the second. Frankly, there's far more here in terms of its detail than we could ever cover in a single Sunday morning together. And yet, we've grouped them together because they deal with a single thought. The two paragraphs work together to essentially say the same thing, just in two slightly different ways. Both clearly teach that New Testament believers are not under Old Testament law. And then they emphasize the results of that fact in two slightly different ways. In other words, by showing us what followers of God in the Old Testament were like, then we learn what followers of God in the New Testament are now like. So let's look at that first paragraph together. Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, if you're looking at that or hearing me read it and your brain is kind of going, then I understand. 
This is a complicated paragraph. And maybe that's because it's a pretty complicated issue. But it's immensely practical. So let's try to work at it together this morning. Friends, those of you who are familiar with your Bible, you'll know that the first book in the Bible is Genesis, and the second is Exodus. See, you're already jamming. The book of Exodus is the first place Paul is referencing when he talks about Moses. He says, from the point that Moses in Exodus gave the Old Testament law. So explicitly, he's talking about Exodus chapter 20. From that moment, chronologically, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament until Jesus came in the first century. That's the period of time he's talking about. In that period of time, all the commandments of God were to be followed by all the people of God. All of them. So think Exodus 20 through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every law in all of those books. Now, would you take a second and turn to the person next to you and tell them how many laws you think that is, if you add them all up? All right. Anybody want to make a guess? Morgan says 633. Anybody have a different guess? That's all I heard. 700. Now, I hate to tell you this, but the last hour, somebody got it exactly right. There was only one guess, and she nailed it. If you take Exodus 20 all the way through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, with a piece of paper, counting the little tallies of every single command. They total 613. You were close, Morgan, but close doesn't count. <laughs> 613 laws. Everyone was commanded to keep every command. It was sinful to break any of them. From Moses to Jesus, that whole period of time is what Paul's talking about. You'll see that in verse 23 in the phrase, before faith came. And then in verse 24, until Christ came. That period of time, all those laws were all in effect. But this is a different time. Now, I don't mean the, the date is different. Although, of course, that's true. No, this is a different era. This is a different period of time. This is after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Today is not the era of Old Testament law, but of New Testament faith, meaning faith that's trusting Jesus Christ as the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's what's different about today. This is the era of known, explicit, personal knowledge of and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He both fulfilled the law, and catch this, then died in place 
of all of us who have failed to keep the law. Think about that. He both fully, 100%, all the time, kept those 613 laws and the heart behind them, and then he bore our punishment for our failure to keep them. Therefore, the laws are no longer ours to keep because Jesus did it for us. Now remember, here in the book of Galatians, if you've been with us, the issue that Paul has been addressing repeatedly is that after he left these churches he started, some other guys came in after him, and they began to teach, if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to be all the way in with God's people, then you've got to follow Jesus, you've got to trust Him, and you've got to follow all the Old Testament law. And Paul has gotten wind of this. And I imagine him like ripping his hair out, declaring, that's not true. That's not true. It's a lie. And here in this paragraph, he's telling us down in the very heart of why. He's saying the law was temporary. It had a limited shelf life, like that milk that's sitting in the back of your fridge with the date that's already passed. The law is now expired, obsolete, chunky and stinky. You shouldn't drink it. Its purpose has been fulfilled. Now, don't misunderstand. There are, of course, many, many, many things that God commands His followers today to do and to not do. But none of those things are we doing based upon what the Old Testament says. It's not as though we need to live like Jews in the Old Testament in order to be Christians in the New. All of this is really bound up in one word in verse 24. It's the word guardian. Do you see it there? If you're using a translation other than the English Standard Version, it, it might say a tutor or a teacher or an instructor. And I saw a few of you lean over and say, he said tutor. That's not the tutor I'm talking about. Youth busted. If you have a kid's Bible, a children's Bible, it might even use the word babysitter. Friends, that's what the law was for. Christian, you do not need in any way to be concerned about taking flour or a ram or a tithe to a priest at the temple. The purpose of all of those things was to be a teacher showing you your need for the coming Savior. And now that He's come, you no longer need the tutor. You need only grace and faith. Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and His sacrificial death, as though He had disobeyed the law, has satisfied God. And so now what counts, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus did. And that's great news. But we're kind of left with this lingering question of how is that possible? 
How is it that what Jesus did can be counted as though it is what you did? How does that actually work? Well, verse 27 uses a simple metaphor to try to explain it. You'll see there, it says that Christians have put on Christ. Have put on Christ. He's talking about clothing. Like new clothes transform our physical appearance. Putting on Christ transforms us spiritually. Beloved, you have been clothed with Jesus. Who He is, what He's done, all the privileges and rights He has. Like fresh new clothes, you have put Him on. A lot of us, a few days ago, dressed up like something for Halloween. It's a little weird adult that you still do that. But you have put on something. You put on a costume. And imagine with me, if you would, that when you put that costume on, you literally became who it was that you were clothed as. Of course, is isn't what happened. But that, in fact, is what has happened spiritually. You were dressed up in the costume of Jesus, and yet it's not a costume. It is the person and work of Christ that now covers you. So everything that Jesus has and is, is yours. And that changes everything. Theologians call this the doctrine of union with Christ. And it's been said that this is the most important doctrine you've never heard of. Union with Christ is Paul's basic definition of what it means to be a Christian. If you were to have asked Paul in the first century to capture in a few words the whole Christian faith, we know confidently what he would have said. He would say two words, in Christ. If you pull open a Bible app on your phone and type in those two words, you will find them literally everywhere. This is Paul's two-word summary or his shorthand for something like this. You've been clothed with Christ. You belong to Him. You are in Him and He is in you. You have a whole new identity in Jesus because you're united to Him. Like two pieces of steel that have been fired together in such a way that they cannot be ripped apart. When the Father looks at you, He sees His Son. Now, what is being clothed with, or to use the other metaphor that the passage uses, baptism, immersion, what is being clothed with or immersed into Jesus cause? What does it bring about? Well, that's what verses 28 and 29 are about. They're so important, they're worth reading again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, in the Greek text it literally says, if you are of Christ, if you are property of Jesus, if you belong to Him, 
If you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to salvation, every Christian is equal to every other Christian. No one is more saved than another. No one ought to have more confidence they're going to get in than another. No one ought to think of themselves as of a higher, better, I know more class over any other Christian. Think about those three categories that he's listed there. Ethnicity, status, and gender. He says when it comes to salvation, ethnicity, status, and gender are irrelevant categories for assessing if someone is right with God and included in his family. As it pertains to justification, identification with Jesus is all that matters. To put that more simply, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Now, this is why it was so wrong, harmful, and evil that some Jews had come after Paul into the churches in Galatia and were telling these new Gentile Christians, you have to follow our all all, you have to follow all our Old Testament laws. I should mispronounce things more often. You look up. It's like, <laughs> all the laws of the Old Testament must be followed if you would be like us. If you would really be all the way in. That's what they're saying. And friends, that makes a mockery of the finished work of Christ. That's worth getting angry over because it's not true. So if we summarize this paragraph, brothers and sisters, we are not slaves under the law. We are heirs by promise. So if you think of that question we asked in the beginning, what is the relationship between the Old Testament law and the New Testament Christian? Well, the relationship is there isn't one. It has been fulfilled. Its purpose has been met. Now we can look on the law and appreciate what it tells us about the character of God. We can look on it and appreciate that Jesus fulfilled it all. But we need not feel in any way bound to keep it. All that God promised Abraham is ours because of Jesus. Now, I think that's still, even after some explanation, it's still a pretty complicated idea. And so, I brought a friend today. Anybody know what this is? Here's how this works. The promise came first. You see that in the passage? The promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham was this. Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the descendants of the earth 
are going to be blessed. This is the essential promise of the Scriptures, that one would come from Abraham and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Would be blessed with a right relationship with God. That is the... I realized she wasn't smiling at you and turned her around. That is the promise given in the Old Testament. That's the promise that we're told here in this passage is ours. We are heirs. But after Genesis chapter 12, after the law, after the promise was given, then came the law. Now, did the law replace the promise? No? Listen. Still in there. The promise was still there. But what happened is over time, many of God's people began to lose sight of promise, of grace, and all they could see was law. All they could see was Exodus 20, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, especially the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. These were the people Jesus disliked the most, people like Paul, whose name was Saul at that point. And although the promise was still in there, they couldn't see it. They had lost sight. They thought they were to relate to God based on law, and that's never what the law was for. But then came Jesus. He's a pink Jesus. In Jesus is the law somehow disappeared? Is the promise irrelevant? No? It's a pretty amazing illustration, isn't it? it? I didn't come up with it, so that's why I can say that. The, the Savior came. The Savior came to fulfill the law as the promise. So in Christ today, what do we have? We have the experience of the promise, the fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus, and we've all been clothed with all of it. All that God promised Abraham is ours because of Jesus. Now, that means something revolutionary. One real problem we have today in terms of communication is we tend to use uh, a words like epic and greatest of all time for everything. Like that meal was the goat. That was the greatest of all time. And the next one is the same thing. Friends, that, that, that's silly. It doesn't actually work that way. But honestly... I genuinely believe if you were to take in, believe, and embrace what I'm about to say, it would truly revolutionize your life. Here it is. We need never seek acceptance from God on the basis of whether or not we followed the rules. We need never, ever seek acceptance from God 
based on whether or not we followed the rules. That's what this paragraph is saying. That's true of Old Testament rules. It's also true of New Testament rules. Everything hinges not on your behavior, but on your belief. Being saved is not about what you do. It's about who you trust. Church, do you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you, by faith, submit to Him as your Lord? Then you are accepted by God. And you forever will be accepted by God. This is the great scandal of grace. This is the essential message of the Christian church. This is what makes Christianity different from every other religion because it is a religion of grace in which the very one we offended and disobeyed took upon himself the demands wrought by his own justice. Now, should we obey all the Old Testament laws that have been repeated or restated in the New Testament? Yes, absolutely. But this obedience flows from our union with Christ. It does not and cannot cause it. Friend, would you imagine the freedom that would be yours if you ceased relating to God on the basis of how you've behaved today? If you recognize you don't have to perform to be accepted by the God of the universe. And if that's true, how much more do we not need to perform to be in relationship with each other? Now, that's the first paragraph. I hope you brought a lunch because we still got one more. I'm going to go a lot faster, though, I promise. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean... I love that he starts with that. Essentially, he's saying, um, the last paragraph was kind of hard. Let me try again. I, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, you also, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, obviously, there's a ton of overlap here, between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. But what these seven verses make so beautifully and abundantly clear, in a slightly different way, is that you, Christian, have a status that is irrevocable. We are sons and daughters of God. God sent His Son, Jesus. He was born as a human being. He was born under the law. Why? 
what for? Well, verse 5 tells us, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the essential message of the entire Bible, that Jesus did all of that in order to redeem people who had failed to obey the law. And what was that for? What was the purpose of redemption? This is so good. It was to redeem us out of slavery in order to bring about adoption. What a picture. You see, Christianity isn't the message that, like, your, your bad has greatly outweighed your good. And Jesus came in order to even the scale so that now you have the chance, the opportunity to perform well enough that maybe someday your good will outweigh your bad. That's not, that's not Christianity. No, Christianity is the message that our bad, like you can't even see good anymore. And Jesus came and completely upended the two. But it doesn't stop there. Because God doesn't merely want to regard you as one who he's fixed and keep you at a distance. No, what's the word? It's adoption. God, God adopts you and welcomes you into the family. He pulls out the chair at the table. He's welcomed you home. Everything that belongs to Jesus, he has clothed you with today. Because we're in the family of God, because we are sons of God, verse 6 goes on to say that God sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of our hearts. And the Spirit now cries out in a, in a sealing, celebratory, assuring way, Father, Father. Now, of course, it's not as though we actually hear audibly from the inside the Spirit going, Father, Father. If you do, we might should talk. The point is that down at your, the deepest part of you, the immaterial part, the Spirit lives. Why? Well, because from the very core of you, He's crying out, Father, Father, which means the Spirit is telling the Father that because of what the Son has done, that we are His forever. That literally, every member of the Trinity is laboring and working together to keep you secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. How pathetic your performance is. But how great the Father and Son and Spirit are at keeping us in Christ. This is the gospel. Now look with me one more time at the last verse. So you're no longer a son, but a, sl a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an, an heir. Now heirs and inheritance is one of those things that from time to time we think about, but nobody actually talks about out loud. Maybe that's partly because we want to ignore death. 
Maybe that's partly because whenever somebody does actually die and leaves an inheritance and there's multiple siblings, what happens? (laughs) Suddenly, brothers and sisters who've always loved each other now hate each other. And they argue and fight. Why? Because there's latent greed in us. Incredibly sad. But, so we don't tend to talk about that stuff. But you don't, this is rhetorical. You don't have to nod or raise your hand. But haven't you sometimes thought, maybe even just once, I wish he'd go ahead and kick the bucket so I can have his stuff. Good for you. Friend, this text is telling us that we are heirs and we have an inheritance that is already ours. So what's our inheritance? Well, I was amazed this week as I studied that a little bit. I don't think I've ever looked at that particular issue in the Bible. In fact... I was overwhelmed, affected even emotionally as I wept, as I read passage after passage after passage that tells us of what's been given to us. Let me tell you just a few. Christian, you have inherited the kingdom of God, the world a new creation, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, eternal life, salvation. And like a snowball rolling down a hill, we can imagine those, right? It culminates in Revelation chapter 21 in a new heavens and a new earth. A reality coming in which there will no more be death, no more tears, no more hardship, no more evil, no more mistakes. Everything made right. That is what you are guaranteed. Ephesians 1 says you've been sealed with the Spirit as a promise, as a pledge, as a guarantee, as a down payment for all of this inheritance. And that same Spirit is Galatians 4, the Spirit inside of you now crying out, Abba. Father. And all of this is yours today because of what Jesus did. Wow. Christians are no longer slaves under law, but are sons and daughters united in Christ. The passage Maddie read to start us uh, this morning, I'd love to revisit We just hear this as we close. 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Listen to these words. That is imperishable, undefiled, undefiled, fading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, here's a fascinating thing. This is true in 1 Peter, and it's true most places our inheritance is talked about. The places in the Bible that we're told, here's what is yours, your inheritance, tends to be texts describing for us our inheritance in the context of suffering and hardship and difficulty. And it's true here. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Friends, the presence of suffering does not negate the guarantee of the inheritance. There are some here today who need to hear that more than anything else. Cancer, singleness, being married to somebody who does not at all fulfill their promises. The failure of a class, an overdrawn bank account, a physical problem that will not go away, a relationship that no matter what you do seems not to get any better. The terrible, horrendous things we see on the news. These do not negate what God has given. so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in glory and praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Christians, this is your inheritance. Church, may this Christian community reflect that we've been given this inheritance. May, when it comes to our salvation, we regard each other as a family of equals, one in Christ, clothed with Jesus, freed from law, sons and daughters. May we relate to God this week not on the shifting sand of our performance, but on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. May we help each other in difficulties and sufferings and disappointments and hardships look to our coming inheritance. And may, friend, if you're hearing this sermon and you are not a Christian, may you receive the great gift of being clothed with Christ today, not by somehow cleaning yourself up and reforming your behavior, but simply by saying, God, I need all of that. I trust in Jesus Christ. He is now my Lord and Savior. Amen. Father, we Thank you for your word, even these passages that are rather complicated and difficult. And I pray now over my brothers and sisters in Christ 
that this word would have its intended effect, that we would be changed. God, we are so prone to relate to you based on law. And the law has been fulfilled. We praise you for Jesus. We pray, God, that you'd help us now to live in light of these marvelous truths. In Jesus' name.